Hi friends, I'm Tierney. I'm Katie. And I'm Shelby. And we're Dead Dead Drunk. What you just heard is our brand new theme music. We are so excited about it. My good pal Dalton recorded it for us and we love it. And if you love it too, then you can go follow his band at nine votes short at N-I-N-E-V-O-T-E-S-S-H-O-R-T on the Instagram. (laughs) They have punk music that they put out, and it's really awesome, and we're super thankful that he did that for us. So thank you, Dalton. Thanks. Today is kind of a rough one. We're going to get into the gory details and just get real messed up. So it's a shot episode, so that's a positive thing. It's also thunderstorming outside, so if you hear some rumbles in the background... It's not that we got super cool special effects. It's just that the weather is really spooky today. <laughs> yeah. And as we're recording this, I just got the email that our podcast is now on Apple. Woo! So you can listen to this episode on Spotify or Apple, or hopefully we'll have more up. We'll let you know on the Instagram. That's so yeah. exciting. So please message us if we do not have like a platform that you listen to, because we want to make this as easy for you as possible. So today we're going to do a shot episode. It's gonna be a white bread backwater shot or a Hudson River shot you know green essence um mm. it's gonna be one part apple vodka we decided not to make another batch because we drank the rest of it <laughs> so we just used like Smirnoff and then we're gonna use one part blue kinky which is like a blueberry vodka type thing and then we're gonna put like a half uh part which is like whatever half a shot of pineapple fanta you're gonna shake that up pour it in a shot glass and just drink until you're numb and are able to listen to this fucked up shit that's about to happen. Mm. Yes. So before we start, we just wanted to thank everybody that's been listening so far. Yeah, what the heck? We did like, we we did not expect everyone other than like our mothers and like maybe our boyfriends to listen. Like Yeah, so it's really, really awesome that you guys have downloaded. We're super thankful. We actually had a family member of one of the victims reach out to us and compliment our podcast and say that we were doing a great job. So we thought that was really cool too already. Feels good, man. Yeah. That so yeah. Especially because I didn't have any family members listen. So <laughs> my boyfriend actually turned to me and goes, Do I have to listen now? <laughs> no, I guess not. <laughs> So with that being said, I think we're going to just jump into our case. Let's cheers and take our white bread backwater shots. Woo! Hope. Oh. Sound effects. <laughs> All right. And now let's jump into part two of Woo! the Poughkeepsie Killer. So just to recap quickly, in the first part, we talked about Wendy Myers, Gina Barone, Kathleen Hurley, Kathy Marsh, Mary Healy Giacone, and Michelle Eason. Those are the women that are missing after part one. Yeah. We also talked about two suspects, the first being Kendall Francois and the second being Mark King. So right where we left off, Mark King was about to get out of jail and Bill Segrist and Skip Manan decided that they were going to meet him at the jail at midnight to ask him some questions. Dun, dun, dun. They immediately confronted him. Skip Manan described him as looking like a professional convict. So I guess that just means that he definitely looks like he would be capable of doing these crimes. Yeah, and on paper, don't forget that he did have assault charges. He did have rape charges. So if he was either holding these women, because keep in mind, they're missing. They're not murdered at this time. Like, they're missing. So he may have been keeping them somewhere or he may have, like, murdered them. It would be easier for him if he has done it in the past, if you get me. Right. Mm -hmm. But... Yeah. But he definitely looks like the type of guy that might do something like this, according to Manan. So a douchebag. <laughs> yeah, I guess. <laughs> they confront him, and he immediately denies any involvement with these women. But he does cooperate with Skip Manan and Bill Segrist. So he gets in the car, and they drive him to his brother's house, which was where he was listed as living at that time. Mm-hmm. But when they got there, it came out that he wasn't actually living there, and instead he was living in a wooded area of Poughkeepsie. That, that seems legit. 
That seems super sketchy to me. <laughs> yeah. Who does that? What yeah. wooded area in Poughkeepsie I also? I couldn't even tell you. <laughs> yeah. But, so, obviously this puts up flags for Seagrest and Manan, and they immediately start looking in the wooded area for either bodies or some kind of evidence that would tie Mark King to the crime, because they want this guy to be their guy, obviously. They yeah. want to catch this, so this crime stops. So, they get cadaver dogs... And they searched the area, but the cadaver dogs couldn't find a thing. So because they had no evidence, they kind of placed Mark King on the back burner as a suspect. Mm -hmm. Segrist will later say that he had the idea to bring the dogs to Francois's house while he had them, but they decided not to because I guess they didn't have enough evidence to think that it was Francois yet. So they did not do anything more with the dogs. They sent them back and they were kind of back to square one at this point. I would send dogs out as lead detectives. Yeah. Because dogs can tell you when a hu- when a person sucks. Yeah. So the dog would be like, oh, yeah, that guy, that guy sucks. Investigate him. <laughs> yeah. Just have a dog with you at all times. So this brings us to January 18th of 1998. Dun, dun, dun. And I have written in my notes, Seagrass decides <laughs> to finally do something else. <laughs> so... This is when Segrist and Manan get in the car and they decide they're going to follow Kendall Francois because now that Mark King is kind of out of their picture, he's their only suspect. So they need to start looking into him more. So every day Francois would drive his mother to work and drop her off and then he would go about his day. So they started following him while his mother was in the car. And once his mother got out and went into work, they pulled Francois over and they asked him to follow them back to the station because they had a few questions that they wanted to ask him. Francois agreed without even asking what it was about, which at the time is kind of like he's being cooperative. That's nice. But when you think about it, if you're being pulled over and asked to come back to the station because there are questions that these police officers want to ask you, what's the first thing you're going to say? I mean, why? Like, yeah. Yeah. Why? What is this about? The fact that he didn't even question it and he just said, yes, of course, and followed them back. He's super suspicious. He's a little sus, yeah. (laughs) So Segrist and Manan decided that they wanted to make this room look like Francois was the number one suspect and they already had enough evidence to convict him because they thought that that would make him admit to the crime. Yeah. So they did a bunch of silly things i believe they labeled a filing cabinet with francois's name to be like "Ooh, we got you yeah <laughs> they did the top drawer was like francois high school records and then underneath was francois college records yeah francois and every drawer was labeled with a different part of his life so that they made it look like they had all this evidence against him but was it? I'm, I'm pretty sure that all of the filing cabinets that they used were completely empty. Yeah, it, they said so. that they were empty and they locked them in case he went over to try to open them. <laughs> so it was really just a tactic to scare him. They had pictures of, of him around and of the victims with like, I'm picturing like in the movies when they have like the pins with the little red ropes around. <laughs> That's me at 3 a.m. On the map. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So this room made it look like Francois was already caught because they wanted him to admit that he did it. Yeah. So they asked him if he had any idea what was happening to the women. They kind of phrased it as, maybe you've heard something. We know you're around. We know that you know some of these women. Have you heard anything? And he said he didn't know them. He admitted absolutely nothing. He even said that he's never slept with a prostitute before. Okay, Kendall. (laughs) Yeah. But he does agree to take a polygraph. And... At the time, Poughkeepsie did not have the machine needed to give him the polygraph, so he had to be transported to Millbrook. Do you guys know how far away Millbrook is? I would say about 15, 20 minutes from the heart of Poughkeepsie. Yeah, not all that far, but still. Super Come on, we didn't have one? Yeah, (laughs) yeah, I guess that was the time not everybody had one. That's white bread back (laughs) one. Exactly, there we go. I'll take a shot for that. I'll take a shot for that. Cheers. Cheers. Okay, so... This is where I saw a little bit of conflicting information. Mm. In the reports I read, it said that Francois just asked if they could stop by his house for something on the way to Millbrook and that they agreed and took him there. In my opinion, I feel like 
he wouldn't want the police coming to his house and I don't know what he would really need before he went. In a different report, I read that there was a woman that claimed that Francois had pulled a knife on her and Francois said it was not a knife, it was a nail file. And so Manan said, okay, bring me to your house and show me this nail file and then you're good to go. So we're not really sure what the reason is that Manan was able to enter Francois's house on that day. But we know that it happened. Mm -hmm. Francois agreed to bring Manan into his house. But he told him that he had to stay with him. He couldn't go around the house. He could only come up to the bedroom and he could not go anywhere else. And Manan had to obey this because they didn't have a search warrant at this time. Do either of you want to tell them a little bit about the house that Manan was walking into? Oh, God. So it was 99 Fulton Avenue. He lived with his mom, dad, and sister, so obviously if something was going on, we would think that they would know what's up, what's good. And also, it was one block away from Vassar College. Actually, I'm pretty sure that Hillary Clinton went there. A lot of other prestigious people went to this Lisa college. Kudrow went there. Mm-hmm. Fuck you, Lisa Kudrow. <laughs> <laughs> Have you seen that tweet? Yes, I love that tweet. <laughs> Have a great weekend, everybody. Except you, Lisa Kudrow. Fuck you. Okay. So... <laughs> So when Manan entered this house, he said that it was absolutely just disgusting. Like the stench of the house was unlike anything he has ever smelt. It was like urine, feces, stale sweat. There was strange cooking odors. So like it was just a nasty ass house. It's really fucking disgusting. So Manan was a neat freak, according to Seagrass. So like this was an absolute nightmare for him. There was literal shit in underwear on the floor of Kendall's room. And which, when I heard this, I was like, okay, I'm messy. Like, my room's a mess. But then when I heard shit in underwear on the floor, I was like, okay, this guy is not just a mess. This guy is demented. Yeah, he's disgusting. Yeah. So, according to reports, Kendall couldn't find the nail file. And he became, like, super agitated and was just like, we have to get out of here. Manan tried to go down in the basement to, like, just try to look around or whatever. And on the way out, he was just like, oh, is this the door? Kendall was freaking pissed. He grabbed him by the collar, pulling him back, and led him out of the fucking house. Yeah, Manan had said that he just had a weird vibe about that basement. And he really thought that the answers would be down there. But because they didn't have the search warrant, he couldn't go. And when Francois got pissed and pulled him back, he knew that he wasn't getting down there that day. But he also mentioned... It was not a normal reaction for if you go the wrong way in somebody's house. Yeah. If I was at my friend's house and I accidentally went the wrong way, I wouldn't expect them to be like, no, like <laughs> we're going this way. Like shit. Like, right. Any normal yeah. person that didn't have something to hide would just be like, no, buddy, it's this way. Like, let's go. All right. So when they got out of the house, they drove to the polygraph. I feel like that was probably one of the most awkward car rides ever. Mm-hmm. Basically, Kendall passed the polygraph with flying colors. So just a few days after Kendall takes the polygraph, he attacks Laura Gallagher on January 23rd, 1998. Somehow, Laura convinced Kendall to drop her back off on Main Street. Do you want to tell her more about that? Yeah, sure. There's not a lot of info about how she convinced him. But the best guess that we have is that she struggled free and put up enough of a fight that he decided it wasn't worth it. Mm-hmm. And then he dropped her back off. Unfortunately, Laura did not go to the police with this until a month later. But when she did, she filed assault charges against Francois. And in May of 1998, he actually pled guilty to the assault charges. However, do you want to know how long he went to jail for for them? Oh, God. This is Poughkeepsie, and this is all of this nonsense. I'm going to guess maybe two weeks. Well, he was originally sentenced to 15 days, but he ended up only serving seven. So he okay, was in jail for fuck? He was in jail for a week. So Francois gets released from jail after only seven days at the end of May of 1998. And it is about two weeks later that the next woman goes missing. Her name is Sandra Jean French, but her friends called her Sandy, and that's what she liked to be called, so we're going to refer to her as Sandy throughout the rest of this podcast. She was 51 years old, and she went missing on June 12th of 1998. She went to Dover Plains High School, which when I did my student teaching, I did it in that district. Mm. It's 
kind of a rural area and there's a lot of families that have a low socioeconomic status. Mm-hmm. The elementary school that I was teaching at, everybody got free lunch because of the amount of students who couldn't afford to buy lunch every day. If that oh, gives so you, nice. yeah, <laughs> but that gives you the kind of yeah area area that it was. So in her high school yearbook, it said that Sandy put her likes and dislikes. Her likes were her 1957 Chevy. Ooh, American Muscle Girl. Horses. And parties. This was the farm area of New York. Oh, yes. I forgot to mention that. Mm. Yeah, it's... Where everybody likes country and they're rednecks, but it doesn't make any sense because they're also New Yorkers. (laughs) So those are her likes. Her dislikes included snotty people, Monday mornings, and hangovers, which girl preach. I know. (laughs) So her dream was to become a flight attendant, but... She started using alcohol, which turned into drugs, and she went to the streets to support her habit, like so many of our other girls in this story. Mm. It's so sad. So I believe that she spent 30 years in and out of jail for a few different things. She did have three children, so she was a mother. One was a daughter named Heidi, who was 29 when her mother went missing. Right. So... Sandy actually had a criminal history. In 1981, she was said to have shot a man, but he survived. So I guess that tells you a little bit about who Sandy was. She didn't take shit. And she was actually about to be a grandmother. Her daughter Heidi was pregnant at the time. And Sandy was so excited about this baby. She would buy the baby things and she would go over to her daughter's house and cook meals for her all the time. So this... Might have been a turning point for her life if this hadn't happened, unfortunately. She was reported missing on June 15th of 98. And the police found her car abandoned in the Arlington area of Poughkeepsie on this day as well. So Arlington is more like, it's in the middle of LaGrange and Poughkeepsie, which from Kendall's house from Vassar is, I think, about a 10 minute drive. So it's yeah. super close. Yeah, and I like, used to teach close. in Arlington yeah. also. So that was super close to Mark King's uh, area too, like right in Poughkeepsie, 10 minute drive of yeah. these two suspects. So. so it could have been anyone though, to be real. So this brings us to another victim that happily got away in... August of 1998, Lucy Degadio mm. was assaulted by Francois, surprise, in his garage. And she caused such a scene that he let her go because he didn't want to get caught. Yeah, and I believe that in a lot of, like, self-defense classes, they tell you to be as loud and ob- as obnoxious as possible. Right, oh, because, yes. like, definitely... They don't, they don't, want, they don't want to deal with it. So right. yeah. be loud. Uh-huh. Be crazy. I know that in shock, when shot hit, hits you, like, it's, like, paralyzing. Just try your best to fucking lose it. And we will, like, try to post some self-defense things in our next coming episode. So yeah, be loud be from now. If anything happens, just be fucking loud, dude. Yeah. Make as much noise as possible. Right. You don't have a whistle? Get a whistle. Mm-hmm. This all happened. She calls the scene. He let her go. But she never told the police. Yeah, she, like many women, never tell about being assaulted in that way. A lot of women don't feel comfortable to go to the police and they kind of feel ashamed that it's their fault. And especially if Lucy Degadio was a sex worker, maybe that deterred her from going to the police. They would Mm. believe her even less than the other women that suffer these assaults. Right, exactly. So keep in mind, if you're a man or a woman, none of this is your fault. None of, like, what happens is your fault, no matter what you're wearing, no matter what you're, like, anything is going on. Your job is. No, nothing is your fault. Yeah. You talk about it when you're ready to talk about it. Yes, exactly. That's also true, yeah. So, that brings us to Audrey Pugliese. Mm. She went missing on August 12th of 1998. She was 33 years old. Unfortunately, there's not a lot of information about Audrey. We -hmm. couldn't even find a picture of her to post. We're assuming that her family wanted privacy, which I completely understand if this is something you're going through. So we don't have a lot to talk to you about Audrey. If there is anyone listening that has any information on her that they'd like to share, we would 
be really happy to share it in a future episode as like a little addition or even in a separate little five minute clip yeah of our podcast because we would like to get her story out there definitely so this is going to bring us to our next victim who is katina newmaster she was 25 and she went missing august 25th 1998 so she grew up in poughkeepsie she always longed to live near the beach which like i understand that at age 25 she had five children She told her boyfriend, Christopher Briggs, that she wanted to get clean but couldn't. So she was just struggling every single day. Yeah, she knew she had a problem and she really wanted to fix it, but she was a victim to her addiction. Yeah. Seagrist had said that they knew Katina since she was a child. This was somebody that had always been in Poughkeepsie, had been on the streets for a while. They were very well aware of her job and her lifestyle that she led. And it was two days before she went missing that Seagrist talked to her the last time. And he told her, listen, you need to be careful. Women like you are going missing. You need to make sure that you take care of yourself. And she said to him, don't worry, I'm too smart for that. Like, don't worry about me. And then two days later, she was missing. September 2nd, 1998. Get ready. Bill Seagrist and Skip Menand decide that they are going to put up a roadblock at about 9 a.m. in the area that women were going missing. They wanted to stop cars and try to catch whoever this was. They were finally like, we need to just stop people and, and look in their cars and talk to them. So they had this roadblock up, and sure enough, they saw Francois driving his car around the area. And Seacrest said that he actually waved to them. He made eye contact and said hello to Francois as he was driving by. So then somebody runs out of a gas station and says there's a woman in here that's claiming she was attacked. So obviously they run inside to see what's going on. And that's when they meet Diane Franco. She's claiming that she was raped. And she had fresh bruises on her neck. Oh gosh. Like yeah. the strangulation? She was raped inside the gas station? No. The, we'll get to what actually happened. But she was not raped inside the gas station. She's saying that she doesn't want to talk because she doesn't want to get in trouble. But they convince her. And all that she says is, and I quote... That big fucking Kendall tried to kill me. Oh my god. So she claimed that she had been with Kendall several times and had no problems. And this time when it came time to pay, he became angered and tried to choke her out. She convinced him to calm down and to drive her to the gas station to get cigarettes. Because she just really needed cigarettes. And he finally decided to. So when he pulled up to the gas station she didn't even wait for him to stop she jumped out of the car and ran inside Fucking and man. she was in the gas station when the police pulled up to start the roadblock so they were in the right place at the right time and that's why they saw kendall driving away because he had dropped her off and he had once she ran out and knew she was going to cause a scene basically he drove away oh my god wow. so this so, is the one time bill Seagrass is in the yes. right place at the right time <laughs> So I have full body chills saying this out loud. But so the police find Francois. He was right there. And they tell him that they're getting a search warrant for his house. He just admits right away that he that he did it. And he says, bring me pictures of all the missing women and I'll tell you which ones I killed. Which I hate this. (laughs) I hate this part. So. When he was flipping through, he said, picture of Wendy, yep, killed her. Picture of Gina, killed her. Kathy, killed her. Sandy, killed her. He said the others, including Michelle, he was not sure about. Yeah. Which we will get into, but a lot of times when people kill, they kind of black out and don't remember a lot. Mm -hmm. Please go to Cirque's fucking house. Mm-hmm. Not only a regular house, it's a fucking house because shit's about to go wild. I want to remind you, it was nicknamed the House of Horrors. Which if is- that gives you an idea of what they're about to walk into. The crime scene investigation takes 29 days. Yeah. So the bodies of Wendy, Gina, Kathy, Kathleen, and Mary are all found in the attic. They are extremely decomposed at this time, and they're all inside separate trash bags. The bodies of Sandra, Audrey, Katina, are found in the basement crawlspace. 
The cause of death for all of these women were strangulation. So I said before that it was a crawl space, like uh, in the basement type thing. I know what you're imagining, but it's not that. So in front of the house, there was a deck. And underneath the deck, there was like a little crawl space type thing. It was more like an under deck than anything else. And that's where the bodies were actually. So he kept them in this like dirt thing. So when people were knocking on the door, like little girl scout cookies, like knocking on the door, there were dead bodies decomposing underneath these people's feet. And I did read in one of the articles that you walked in the house, you walked in the attic, and all of these people were decomposing, and it all added up to be like a mushy type substance. So this one detective, while he was cleaning it out, he ruined two pairs of shoes, and it was just absolute sludge walking. And I said that his sister was living in this house, right? Her mattress was like directly under while all of this is happening. And there are reports that there were maggots in her bed falling down from the attic. And it was just absolutely horrible reading that. It was disgusting. Yeah, I can't even imagine. I don't know. Also, if you're imagining the smell, it did smell. It smells like his shit. his mom brought it up mm-hmm. and he said it was a dead raccoon. Yeah. Can you imagine one dead raccoon making that stench? No. Yeah, but again, it was such a disgusting house altogether mm-hmm. that I'm sure it was just like a mix of all these odors. Oh, yeah. Nobody in that house cleaned it all. No. So. His parents said that they didn't even notice the smell or these decaying bodies. They just had maggots in their house already, so it was absolutely horrible. And his neighbors, they all noticed the smell, but they just didn't say anything because they knew, like... What kind of person this Kendall was, you know? And his childhood nickname, keep in mind, was uh, Tyranny, cover your eyes. Uh, cover your eyes. Ears. <laughs> his nickname was Stinky. So keep in mind that his neighbors like knew all of this. So I want to take this time to talk about Michelle. Her body was not found in this house at all. Till this day, it has not been found. Right, and Kendall did talk a little bit about her to police he said that he didn't want to associate with her because she was an african-american which is interesting because he was african-american so to this day we do not know what happened to michelle eason he did talk about to detectives a little bit he hinted that he knew more than he was telling them but would not admit to doing anything to her Francois claimed that he did know her, but denied ever being sexually involved with her. However, apparently there were witnesses that claimed otherwise. Mm -hmm. Another theory for Michelle's disappearance, besides being a victim of Francois, was that it was drug-related. Apparently, at the time of her disappearance, she was living with drug dealers, and it is said that she may have been killed in retaliation for stealing drugs from them. Her boyfriend at the time thinks that it was about drugs and that maybe she was dumped in the river, but nobody has ever been charged in association with her death. So at this time, Michelle Eason is still missing and her case is still technically open to police. So, yeah, unfortunately, we don't have closure for her, but hopefully... If you're listening to this and you know anything about that, please contact the city of Poughkeepsie, please. Yeah. Hopefully they will do something about it in less than a year this time. I'm sure the Eason's just want to know what happened. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. At this point, they just want justice for their daughter and girlfriend and everything else that she was to people. Yeah. So at this point, we are going to go through what Kendall says happened Mm -hmm. and this is where we get into the details of the murders of these women so this is what happened according to Francois to Wendy Myers Francois picked her up at the corner of Jewett Ave and Main Street in Poughkeepsie he recognized her from a previous time that she had apparently ripped him off after agreeing on a price she got into his car and they went to his house and up to his second floor bedroom He paid her up front, and they had sex. At some point, Myers asked him to stop. It said that she was in a hurry to get to another client. 
This enraged him, and he ended up choking her until her hyoid bone cracked. That's the bone in your neck that when they're doing autopsies of decaying bodies, if this bone is cracked, it points to the cause of death being strangulation. Wendy was a fighter. She was fighting as hard as she could, and it was said that when Wendy was being choked, she was fighting too hard. That's when he brought her to the bathtub and started drowning her until she stopped kicking. Then he put her in a garbage bag and put her into his attic. She was reported missing in Lloyd first because she was a resident there, remember? Yeah. Next came Gina Barone. Mm. Gina had an argument with her boyfriend the night of her disappearance, so he left her on the street in downtown Poughkeepsie. She decided to work while she was out there since she was already on the street, and Kendall Francois pulled up next to her. They agreed on a price and decided to do it in his car off of Route 9. From the point he picked her up, she was complaining a lot about his weight, about how he was taking too long, etc. Enraged, he strangled her in the car, placed her in the trunk, and went about his day as normal. He took his mother to work, he dropped his sister off at school, and he later returned home where he unloaded her into the garage. So he did all of that with her body in the trunk. Right. I think this did happen at nighttime, and then the next morning he just took his mom to work. He hadn't done anything with the body yet. So his mother and his sister were in the car with this body in the trunk. Oh, my God. Yeah. So she remained in the garage for several months until a snowstorm hit Dutchess County. The snowstorm caused a tree to fall over on top of the garage, and Francois' parents began to talk about getting the garage redone. So in a panic, Francois took Gina's decaying body and placed her in the attic, which at this time had Wendy and Kathy up there. Kathy was murdered in between the time he killed Gina and the time that he moved her up to the attic. So this brings us to Kathy. Francois was a repeat customer of Kathy's. He picked her up and he took her to his home. While having sex, he suddenly became enraged and... This is a little graphic, so if you want to skip ahead, you should do that now. He told police that he began to strangle her while he was still inside of her. Once she was dead, he did the same thing that he did with Wendy. He bathed her, and then he put her in the attic with everyone else. Francois later said that Kathy was just in the wrong place at the wrong time because he was mad about something else, and he took it out on her. And this is going to bring us to Kathleen. And Francois will later say that he doesn't even remember murdering her and was just surprised to see her body in the attic. Like, he was just like, oh, didn't know that was there. And this didn't bother him at all. Like, at all. In his mind, it was just another body that would decay in his attic. Like, right. an absolute monster. Yeah, he, he did black out for a lot of these. He also was blacked out for Mary. All he said about Mary, who was our next victim was that he pulled up next to her, they agreed on a price, then they went to his home, and she met a similar fate to the others. He strangled her, he bathed her, he put her in the attic. Yeah. And for Sandy, like the others, she was murdered in Francois' room. He'd taken her to the bath to be washed off, and he placed her in the attic. However, the attic was getting way too crowded. So the next day, Francois took her down and buried her in a shallow grave in that crawl space in the basement that I told you guys about. Right, so that's where the crawl space starts to kind of be a thing for him. Oh gosh. So this brings us to Audrey. Again, we didn't really know a lot about Audrey before, but he does remember what happened with Audrey, so we will tell you about that. She was working on Knoxon Street when Francois pulled up. He was a regular of hers, as he was with the others, so they quickly negotiated a price and she got into the car. During sex, this time in the basement, Francois flipped out and began punching Audrey in the face. She broke free and made a break for the basement door, but when Francois was able to catch her, he pulled her back in. Oh my god. He threw her to the ground, where the attack continued, and then he stomped on her face and neck before strangling her like the other victims. She was then placed on top of Sandra French in the crawl space. And he does remember that Audrey was a fighter. He remembers her being much harder to kill than the others. Yeah, and I I did read in a couple of articles, so I don't know if this is actually true, 
Audrey was the woman that in the basement he saw a kiddie pool and while she was, you know, fighting for her life, he actually crushed her head and neck in the kiddie pool. So there was just, they actually found, like apparently in these articles, it said that they found like a bunch of blood and a lot of really other disgusting things in this kiddie pool. I know, it's just disgusting. You like, a lot of times serial killers just make me so disgusted in like a lot of facts but when they take an item that is for a child or they take a child and they just pervert it is i can't even oh that's why every single time you said and then he took her up to his room and then he was in his room and they were in his bed it's his childhood bed these are mickey mouse sheets that these girls were killed on yeah that yeah. poor mouse those poor girls yeah so this brings us to our last victim katina newmaster Francois picked her up and brought her to his garage, where he strangled her. He was having thoughts of a previous time that she ripped him off. And he talked about getting ripped off by her and by Wendy as well, that these women would kind of agree to a price and then take his money and run Mm -hmm. without actually fulfilling it. So this angered him a lot, which might have been a trigger for him. So he ended up murdering her and left her there for a day before he then took her from the garage and added her to the crawl space. And this would be his final murder before he was taken into custody. So, Kendall Francois on September 9th of 1998 entered a not guilty plea. But on December 23rd of 98, He ended up changing his plea to guilty to avoid the death penalty. Finally, on August 7th of 2000, he confessed to eight murders and was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. So now I'm going to hand it over to Shelby and she will talk about some of the letters that Kendall wrote and received. Yes. So during Kendall Francois' incarceration, he wrote... Letters to multiple different women, but most notably is Claudia Rowe. Does that name sound familiar to anybody? Because it should. She's the woman that coined the term white bread backwater Dutchess County. I'll take a shot to that. Same. (laughs) (laughs) Nope. I spelled my shot literally all over my leg, but it's fine. That's how many shots we've taken. She was and still is a reporter and now an award-winning author. And she wrote the book on this, literally... Called The Spider and the Fly, A Reporter, A Serial Killer, and The Meaning of Murder. Mm. But we're getting too ahead of ourselves. In the summer of 1998, Claudia Rowe is living in Dutchess County working as a stringer for the New York Times after quitting the Poughkeepsie Journal, which she said was far too boring. Which now is a good time. We were talking to Katie's mom. Shout out if you're listening. About the Poughkeepsie Journal. And what did she say its nickname was? The Poughkeepsie Urinal. That's a good one. It's so accurate and so funny, so I just had to put that in there. Okay, go ahead, Shelby. So Rose's boyfriend at the time encouraged her to pursue the story of the then seven missing women. Rose begins investigating by reaching out to each of the missing women's families, and she discovers that all of them were struggling with addictions and working as prostitutes, which we all know. And this is why they were neglected by law enforcement. According to Ro. Garbage. Exactly. She said, I feel very strongly that while Kendall treated his victims like garbage, the surrounding community didn't do much better. And I have to say that she's pretty correct in that. Oh, yeah. As we know, the journal didn't even run the missing women's stories. But Ro took the story to her editor at the Times, who told her to keep digging. Good for that guy. Yeah. Uh, Then in September of 1998... As we know, they went to Fulton Avenue, and Mm -hmm. she was there. She was in the crowd watching as the police searched the Francois house and as they made their arrest. While at 99 Fulton Avenue, Roe meets Georgiana Johnson, who says her daughter, Debbie Anon, had alerted police to Francois' proclivity for violence. Anon claims that she went to the police twice, claiming that he had attempted to strangle her. The first time she went to the police was as early as November 1997. And if we're looking at dates, that means that if they had arrested him then, Sandy, Audrey, and Katina might all still be alive. 
So next in our book, I have Kendall's interview with a prosecutor. I don't know the full name of the prosecutor. I remember her last name was Smith, but this is not the prosecutor that took him to court. Because she interviewed him, she couldn't, obviously. So she pulls out a book full of the headshots of Caucasian prostitutes, and Kendall picks out Wendy, Gina, Kathy, and Sandy, saying, I killed them. When presented with the African-American book of prostitutes, Kendall says he doesn't need it. Then the prosecutor asks, why did you want to kill Wendy? And he says, and this is the voice that the audiobook woman uses, so I didn't originally. I'm not going to keep doing it because that's ridiculous voice. It's a ridiculous voice what they (laughs) use in the audiobook. It's really, ugh. Anyway, he says, I didn't originally. I guess I got mad about it and started choking her. I didn't want to get ripped off again. And once it had gone to that point, I figured there was no turning back. He then described how he strangled her on his childhood bed with the Mickey Mouse sheets, then put her in the upstairs tub to drown. Once she had stopped moving, Francois put Wendy's body in a trash bag and tossed her in the attic. The prosecutor then asks, why do you keep at it, Kendall? I don't know. It seemed easier than getting into a relationship. Oh my God. Wow. Does it really though? Like, I've been in some shitty relationships, but I've never thought, huh, maybe I just kill a bunch of people and it's, like, the same thing. (laughs) It's easier. It's not the same thing. It's even easier than keeping, than being in a monogamous relationship. (laughs) Why would I be in a relationship when I could just very easily be a serial killer? It's just, you know. That's being sarcastic, guys. Please don't kill people. (laughs) You didn't sense the sarcasm in my voice. Mm-mm. <laughs> Who are you? So once Kendall was arrested, Roe decided to try and get in contact with him. As it would be an interesting article for the Times. So this was purely for personal gain, not for oh, just man. her own edification or anything. Yeah. So in November of 1999, he finally writes back. I'm not sure how many letters she sent at this point, but it's not just one. But he does finally reply. And he tells her... That if she provides him with all of the aspects of her life, her first kiss, what dress she wore under her graduation gown, her first blowjob, all of those kinds of things, he'll answer four questions, honestly. For every 10 pages typed, I will answer any four questions. And in return for her honesty, Francois agrees to be honest and complete in his answers. This led to a four-year exchange of letters between Roe and Francois. In those letters, Roe explored her painful childhood past, her abusive mother and an ineffective father. While she attempted to use Francois as a story for the time, she obsessed over understanding the way his mind worked. So she says in her own words, quote, What really kind of drove me were the words people used to talk about him, which were monster and evil Those are totally accurate and reasonable words, but monster, to me, sounds like a magical creature and not real. Evil, to me, sounds like a bad witch in a fairy tale. It did not give me any sense of the person, and he was the person. So, in a way, Ro wanted to get to a behind-the-murderer kind of thing. I don't know that she ever got that. A lot of the book is discussing what she discovered in writing her entire personal history to him, which was a lot. But after writing those four years of letters, she just stashed them away. She also went to visit him multiple times and recorded some tapes with interviews, and, but she just hid all of this away. As it wasn't really interesting to the times, getting into a murderer's mind. Mm. They had the story, you know, they already reported on it. So for her, in her own words again, it was a personal project. I didn't tell any editors about it. From the very beginning, I wasn't sure what I was going to do about it. I was pursuing a thread. Hmm. That's interesting that it started as like a personal gain for her. But I guess when she got to know him and started uncovering the stories, it kind of turned into something that was personal. Which I get the whole fascination aspect. But in reality, it does make me so sick that she was like giving him a lot. Mm -hmm. And she... Uh, like, in a sense, it was still for her personal gain because of this book. Oh, yeah. They were both, they were using each other. Francois was using her in some way. I'm, I'm sure it was sick and 
and twist it. But yeah. in whatever way he was using her, he was using her. So this obsession that she had with Kendall Francois stayed hidden for 18 years until she released the book, The Spider and the Fly, which I mentioned earlier, in 2014. Ultimately, Rose set out to try and understand Francois' motives, but she ended up rediscovering her own past instead. And that's why the book isn't really, like, delving into a serial killer's mind. It's more of a memoir. But she did she did uncover some of his reasoning. It's not like he doesn't have good reasons. Really, spoiler alert. Did she at all talk about her opinion of him as a person? Like, did she like him? I don't think that she considers him the monster that everybody else considers Even him. Even he murdered, like, at least eight women. Oh, right, well... He was just a lost soul, don't you know? I think that's just a lot of what she's saying. Do you want to hear what she did come out of it with? His reasoning? Love oh, that. God. In her words, she says, I came to understand many of the components that went into creating him. Oh, a deeply God. disconnected family life, for one thing. A tremendous sense of alienation or otherness from the norms of the world. Within that, he developed a raging hatred of women and a tremendous sensitivity to what he perceived as humiliation. Which is definitely saying something. You have to think, I know that he is an awful person that is rotting in hell as we speak. But at one time he was a child and just an innocent person before any of this happened. Yeah, and I think that this book and, like, him as a person, like, she did bring up the point that, like, the age-old question, were people made just born evil? Or is it a bread thing? You know what I mean? Yeah. Were they, like... What happened to him as a child that made him this way? Mm. I guess is what she's... Or was he just evil? I do have the thoughts of a forensic psychiatrist on this, well, if you'd like that. to hear it. Let it out. This is forensic psychologist Louis Schlesinger. Mm. That's a great name. Yeah, I love it. And he explains that killers like Francois rarely confront their motives. Mm-hmm. They understand it at some level, but it's usually a rationalized explanation. They are rationalizations to minimize their behavior and explain it away. So saying something like, oh, I had a very hard family life, I wasn't accepted because I was fat, everybody bullied me, these are just things to explain away why you murdered someone. Because other people are fat and are disconnected from their families and are abused as children and don't murder people. But other than Claudia Rowe, he also wrote Poughkeepsie Native, I believe, or... She lived here at one point. Christina Sharp. Christina Sharp was being held in the same Dutchess County Jail for assault on a family member. She got past that, though. She's all good now. Okay. Uh, but she was in a cell directly above Candle Francois. And if you've seen that Netflix thing, Jailbirds, they could talk through the toilets. All right. So after they talk shit. So after, <laughs> so after Sharp and Francois began communicating through the plumbing... They then sent letters to each other, and Sharp receives a total of 10 letters between 2011 and 2013 from Francois. And he agrees to keep writing her in exchange for updates on Arlington Wrestling. He used to be a member of the wrestling team, so he wanted to know how the sports team was doing. Wait, so he murdered all of these women, and he was just worried about wrestling. (laughs) Nothing else going on in the fucking world. Well, he already... Well, what else is he supposed to... He's he's not remorseful. I hate him! (laughs) What else is he supposed to care about, honestly? (laughs) It's just very interesting that that's, like, his thing. (laughs) That's his thing. He needed wrestling and, like, local Poughkeepsie sports and that kind of stuff. Whatever Arlington was doing. Um, (laughs) So Sharp keeps it going because she wants an answer, like the rest of us do, to why. Or even an admission of guilt. For his crimes. It should be noted that all of Francois's letters were completely mistake-free. Nothing is crossed out or misspelled, and they're full legal pages. That kind of reminds me of when we were talking in part one about his teacher, Mr. G, and how he talked about how Francois was as a student when he was saying he was a rational thinker, he thought things through... He just seemed like the kind of guy that would have completely mistake-free letters. He was a good student. Yeah. So that kind of made sense with what we already knew about him. And it's just so scary to think about. Keep in mind, like, I don't know if this is just, like, me because this is, like, 
our super local case, but it's just so scary. You never know what someone's up to. Mm-hmm. You never know a person. No. Yeah. So in his letters, Francois claimed that he was a, quote, measured person in thought, but rash in actions. Oh, that makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. He was also a practicing Christian, which is not unusual. unusual sorry. He was also a practicing Christian, which is not unusual for convicted criminals. It provides them with another way to rationalize their actions, so they it's typical for them to turn to the Bible. I did see, though, that he was a practicing Christian before any of this happened. His senior quote in high school was from the Bible, so he was really into his faith throughout his life, despite all these things that he ended up doing to these women. So it wasn't like he turned to it because of his crimes. Yeah. So as a renewed practicing Christian, he cites Bible passages in his letters to Christina Sharp. And I mean, I'll let you judge the passages he used. He quotes Romans 3.23 For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. In Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. So he's basically using these Bible passages to say that while he might not have been in the right to kill them, they deserved their end. So does he think that he deserves to die now because he has sinned or does he not think that he's sinned? So like here is my whole anger thing. Um... So a lot of the times I get really angry this, like with this, because you know, found Jesus, bless up. But my whole thing is a lot of times serial killers use the Bible as like, oh, this is what I do. Obviously they're not reading it because one of the biggest sins that you could commit is playing God, Mm -hmm. is exactly what these people do. And I get so angry. It's actually like, I went to my sister-in-law's house and like, you know, she's blessed up too. And like... I, whenever I get drunk with her, I literally just talk about, like, things like this, about how, like, God works and just, like, in different ways. Like, I know a lot of people don't agree with me, and that's fine. But in any way, if you're trying to play God and you're trying to pass that off, like, with the Bible, you're kind of a piece of shit. God. So, Kendall actually answers you, Tierney, in the rest of his letter. Oh, nice. Here's a quote that says, We all deserve to die. Oh my god. But that doesn't mean that I should have been the instrument by which they met their end. So he So in some way, yeah, he's kind of expressing some kind of guilt, but he never he never says that what he did was wrong. He does go further into why he has such an anger towards women. He first describes the three types of women that he sees in his life. As one, women he saw as family. So like his mom and his sister. Uh, Women who were his friend. I'm not sure we know any of them. Um, And three, those I was having sex with. Oh, gosh. Okay. Yeah. You mean like raping or paying for it? Or like what? What's going on here? Did anybody ever (laughs) have consensual, like, Like non-paid-for sex with Kendall Francois? That's an interesting... Did anybody? If you have, please write in a dead drunk crime. We'd love to know yeah, how you got it. Hit us up on Gmail. <laughs> we would love to get you some help. <laughs> so he wrote in probably the same letter that growing up, he thought women were better than men on a fundamental level. Gross. But that I mean, changed... They are, but that, Yeah, no, that's right. Wait, he thought that women were better than men? Yeah. Women okay. are better than men on right. a fundamental I, I, my, level. My dumbass read that as the other way around. Well, no, you sorry. would assume that he thought the other way around for everything he did. Yeah. Yeah. So that way of thinking didn't change until he entered into the Army. Uh, he completed his basic training at Fort Sill, Oklahoma. Hmm. Um, I don't know why that was a hard word for me to get out. In 1990, and was stationed on a base in Hawaii, which sounds nice. And he says, seeing how so many of these married women behaved themselves when their husbands were off training, 
caused that once lofty pedestal to come crashing down. So you're saying that he saw women, like, cheating on their husbands, and so he decided that he hates women now? Mm-hmm. Huh. So our good friend forensic psychologist, Louis Schlesinger, he says that so many sexual murderers are highly moralistic. They are offended by promiscuous sex. That's not funny. Schlesinger is just a very funny word to say. <laughs> Schlesinger? Say yeah, that sometimes fast. No. <laughs> so... Yeah, so he's offended by promiscuous sex, which is strange. It's strange that he's offended by that, yet he's only having sex with sex workers. He's not, like, in a relationship. Like, isn't that sex considered promiscuous because it's not in marriage or however he would believe in the Bible? I would think so, but in his own words, this was easier than getting into a relationship true, for him. True, true, I Personally, no matter what anyone says, I think that this is just a purely evil person that tried to look for any excuse to make him get away with what yeah, he's done. Yeah, it sounds like a lot of what he's coming up with is excuses. So I have a few more quotes from his letters. Mm-hmm. His letter in the summer of 2012 to Christina Sharp said... There are times that I have to remind myself that it was the same hands that are now writing you that ended so many lives. Gross. Another quote is, I don't even know what the truth is. I don't even remember the events that much, mostly feelings. Even those feelings may only be a justification after the fact for what I did. (sighs) Mm -hmm. The fact that he calls them events. Mm -hmm. I guess I don't know what else you would call them, but. Ugh. Murders? Yeah. I don't have anything to say to him. (laughs) Okay, so his next letter in the winter of 2012 Mm. said, I had a darkness in my soul and a rage in my heart that I kept caged most of the time. Though none of them were innocent, none of them deserved to have that rage unleashed on them. I gave myself over to my basest nature, one lost completely in sin. Okay, excuse me. None of them were innocent. I hate people. What did they do to deserve for him to kill them? I think if we're going off of his Christian beliefs and taking them so seriously, they are also sinners and in that respect are not innocent. Gotcha. Okay. So I think that's what he means. But I also think this is the closest we're ever going to get. To understand to, remor- to remorse, to any kind of feeling. Yeah. Do you think that, like, in this mindset, if someone, like, came up to him and started killing him, you'd be like, all right, I get it. I'm a sinner. That's fair. <laughs> this will come to you, too. Like, fucking asshole. No. I think a lot of murderers that think that way would get pissed and murder them back, and then it'd just be two murderers dead in the street. That'd be sick. That would be... Do that. A problem solving itself. Two murderers dead in the street. (laughs) The problem that solved itself. (laughs) (laughs) So, he has another quote from that letter saying, I was once filled with a darkness so complete that it was a part of me. Yeah. Again, just some way to disconnect himself from the actual murders. Right, yeah. Then he wrote a final letter in March of 2013, in which he promised to tell Sharp everything, but then he didn't, and instead he complained that he didn't get enough updates on Arlington Wrestling or their other sports, so he stopped writing her. You're and <laughs> then, yeah, well, he got stuff. really mad. <laughs> oh, of course. And then he stopped writing, and then he died. Yeah, yeah. so... um. It was September 11th of 2014, and Francois died of cancer while he was in prison at age 43. It did come out that he also had AIDS at the time of his death, but that was not the cause of his death. It was cancer. So, like, he's dead, so that's sick. (laughs) Like, love that for him. Love that for him. Love that for us. Love that journey for us. Yeah, I'm, I'm super sick that he's, you know... Peace, so man. that's the end. He got AIDS and then he got cancer and then he died. Yeah. So he kind of he kind of got what he was coming to him, but you know, not that everybody with cancer got what coming to him, but this guy definitely did. So yeah. So this is so far the end of the Poughkeepsie killer story. He did it. Case closed. Yeah. Except for Michelle, if anyone knows anything about her, please 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 
contact the city of Poughkeepsie, please. And that case is still open. So thank you guys so much for tuning in to hear about the Poughkeepsie killer. We wanted to tell you about what we'll be doing next week. I'm going to be telling Shelby and Katie all about the Porco murders that happened up in Albany, where I'm originally from. Dun, dun, dun. Kind of a crazy story. If you haven't heard, tune in. If you have heard, tune in anyway. I'm really excited to cover it, and I'm really excited for our cocktail next week. But before we go, we're just going to share a little bit about our furry friends so we can end on a lighter note. So Shelby, do you want to go first with what we had to do in the middle of this podcast that editing will not tell anyone that we had to stop and do? Oh, (laughs) sure. So basically, right when we get to my super interesting part about the letters to Francois, I get a text. Well, I get a call, which I ignored because I'm a very professional podcaster. And (laughs) then... I look at my phone and my boyfriend texted Jenny out like a caveman, but he was flipping out. And then I called him and he had a tone of voice that was like nothing I've ever heard before. So we had to pile in the car and go find her because my dog got loose. And I don't know if you could hear it earlier, but it was thundering and she doesn't really love that. What you hear right now is not thunder. It's my stomach. I'm really hungry. (laughs) And... (laughs) So she got out and we went around and we got, we all got really, really moist um, <laughs> trigger warning. Sorry, we all got really wet, um, not in a fun way, and but we got her back. You know? Yeah. So, <laughs> so that's the story about Jenny. That's how Jenny got found. Yeah. Katie, do you want to talk about your kitties? Okay. So I got a whole lot of cats. So I have three cats, and they're all really fuzzy and really sweet. And I guarantee I'll have wild stories to tell you. So, I don't have any cool ones yet. I do have a cat tattoo, and I'm, like, way too obsessed with cats. I'm, I'm, I mean, keep in mind, I love all animals. I love every single one of them. Except bunnies. No, I love bunnies. I'm just allergic to a lot of rodents. So, like, I'm allergic (laughs) to bunnies, like, uh, ferrets, which sucks. Uh, hamsters. Being allergic to ferrets suck? Uh, yeah. They're so cute. Yeah, but they're, they're like, really stinky. Okay, but they're... Oh! Mo- Sorry, smelly. They're really smelly. <laughs> yeah, but they're... Off, you're listening. <laughs> I'm so sorry. But they're, they're furry long boys, and I love them. Yeah, they are really cute. I can't hate anything, but... no matter how bad it smells. <laughs> but, yeah, so I, um, I love all animals, but, like, I love cats so, so much because I've always had them. We, I actually got us all matching wine glasses, with cats on them that say crazy cat lady and that's what we've been using to cheers mm-hmm. so. Yeah, so fun so tyranny has a few really really a, cool i have friends. a few fluffy friends too oh gosh um okay, i have... you didn't ever do that podcast. <laughs> that's the last time you'll ever hear me do that sorry <laughs> sorry in advance um so i have two kitties i do have a tattoo of one of them also sorry mom um and their names are Cleopatra and Yoshi and they are so sweet and then my parents have two fluffy golden doodles that are actually therapy dogs their names are Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig and they volunteer at the hospital and in schools with children with autism and they're just so fluffy and cute and I love them that's really great I'm so happy about that I also absolutely adore my boyfriend's dogs and cats. He has some crazy amount of cats. I honestly lost count of them. I'm not even kidding. And he has a little little dog named Tilly. And then he has this huge, absolutely, the it's a Mastiff or whatever they're called. Oh, yeah. And it's still a puppy. And it's like double my size. And I'm so afraid of it. But it's so cute. And his so name is Roman. And I would die for him. No, Aww. I would like genuinely kill both of you for him. No offense. <laughs> like, I love you guys. Next <laughs> week. I'm <to> the <laughs> So if you have fur babies, send them in. Send us a picture. We love all of them. Yes. So if you guys have any recommendations or if you want to send us your fur babies or even any reptiles or anything like that, please send them in. You can reach us at Gmail. You can reach us at Gmail at deaddrunkpod on the Gmail. Everything else, we are at deaddrunkcrime. Make sure to look next Wednesday for the Porco Cocktail. And we'll be back on Thursday with 
episode three. And we're on Apple. Yes, you're, you might be listening to this on Apple. We made it, folks. Yeah, so please leave us reviews. Please send in feedback. We're super, super excited with how many people are streaming, downloading, giving us feedback. So please keep it coming because we I'll love it. I'll you a dollar if you leave us a review. What? What? <laughs> <laughs> All right, bye. Bye, mom.